0: Gratitude goes out to you today for listening to Eco Radio KC on 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. This is a locally made exploration into positive solutions to some of today's ecological challenges for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. Today on Eco Radio KC, we will play the recording from a presentation by local ecologists Courtney Masterson and Frank Norman on the topic of how you can restore a bit of native prairie to your own backyard. Courtney Masterson is Executive Director of Native Lands Restoration Collaborative, a charitable organization that empowers diverse land stewards to protect and restore resilient native ecosystems through community education. Frank Norman owns Norman's Ecological Consulting, LLC, which helps individuals and companies with ecological restoration, rare plant surveys, and more. The discussion will help educate listeners about how to help native pollinators and wildlife add self-sustaining beauty to landscaping sequester carbon, and more. All good things for homeowner value and sustainable living on our planet. When your home or business is located on the prairie, conditions already exist to grow prairie landscape. Ask yourself, do you want to spend all your time and income watering and mowing a lawn, or would you rather support plants and wildlife in beautiful abundance? The maintenance advantage of Alone are significant. If you can give up just one corner of your lawn and grow a few asters and grasses, this would make a difference in giving a little bit back to nature. We at EcoRadio KC are glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to ensure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present for a sustainable future. This will be a great radio hour. Now our show.
1: Welcome. How exciting is this to have such interest in native prairie? It makes my heart happy. Thank you for being part of this movement to help restore native prairie. I'm Tamara Fairbanks of We run Good Earth Gatherings and Good Earth Herbs. There's a lot you can do in your own backyard. We must restore native habitats. It's vitally important, as I'm sure you're going to learn from these two wonderful experts. So I'd like to introduce Courtney Masterson and Frank Norman. And Courtney is an ecologist and the executive director of the Native Lands Restoration Collaborative, a charitable organization that empowers diverse land stewards to protect and restore resilient native ecosystems through community education. And Frank Norman, he's an ecologist and the owner of Norman Ecological Consulting, which is dedicated to helping individuals and companies with a variety of ecological services, including ecological restoration, rare plant surveys, and more. Frank and Courtney, what is a native plant? What makes a plant a native plant, and why are they so important?
2: Um, You know, there's, there's a pretty good ecological consensus on what a native plant is essentially the species that existed prior to um, sort of extensive human disturbance, which is usually associated with European settlement um, for our region. But there were a lot of plants moving around prior to European settlement too, um, certainly the tribes were moving plants. So sometimes it takes a genetic research project to determine when something occurred here. But for the most part, um, if you're looking at a, a prairie, an intact prairie or woodland or wetland, um, you're looking at
1: mostly native species. So, why is it important to restore native
2: prairie? I think the species that make up our native landscapes, whether it be prairie, woodlands, wetlands, are foundational to the survival of all the biodiversity that stacks upon them, including the human, the animal. But, you know, every native insect, every native mammal, every native reptile depends on the foundation of a healthy, diverse ecosystem. And our native landscapes are sort of these mega diverse spaces. Um, and disturbance tends to you know, shoot your diversity down um, pretty rapidly. So, with the loss of any native species of plant, you are um, you know, threatening the life of animals that depend on that species. There's not a native plant species here that doesn't have a special relationship with an animal or a fungus or a bacteria. Um, and we may not recognize that relationship, but it's there
1: nonetheless. I've heard that native plants can help clean the water and clean the air. Can you talk about
2: that? Um, I was actually just researching ragweed. Ragweed is um, a phytoremediator, it picks up heavy metals from the soil and from water, the edges of the water. Um, sunflowers do that, milkweeds do that. There's a lot of a lot of species that are phytoremediated. Yeah,
3: I know a lot of them. Do I have <laughs> to stick with just native plants?
2: <laughs> yes, that's what this talk is about. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, there's both there's many on both sides are. of the fence. There are. So to speak. let's um, go back three hundred to five hundred years ago when most of this land around it was tall grass prairie. Um, the rain would fall, and the, the plants would slow down the rain. It would, infl- it would fall down to the ground. It wouldn't be rushing off like if it was on on um, concrete or impervious surface. It would filter down through the soil. Um, Any impurities would be taken up by the plants or um, up by the by the soil, the soil itself, and then the water would go to the groundwater laterally move towards the streams.
2: Uh, I'm going to add, because Frank jarred something in my brain, that even plants that are not, through research or indigenous knowledge, known to, to filter water or pick up excess flutes directly, they indirectly help us by anchoring soil that is a filter. So, uh, especially plants from, from prairie that are, have extensive and you know incredibly deep root systems, they're anchoring these soil filters that are doing
3: incredible work. Well, I'll, I'll add one thing. Yeah. There are some wetland treatment facilities that will take um, water, sort of like, like our water treatment facilities but they use wetlands, and some of the best wetlands are cattails. They'll take up a lot of phosphate. Most wetland plants will take up nitrogen, and also the microbes and the bacteria in the soils will change the nitrogen so the roots are really, really important to uh, take on that.
2: Uh, but when you plant native plants at home, you are, every year that plant is storing more carbon in your soil, um, even the shorter ones well, like Black Eyed Seasons, the Rubeckias, yes. um, um, they're still depositing quite a bit of carbon before they're done.
3: Back to um, um, tall grass Prairie back 300 years ago, 500 years ago, and uh, the deep roots were what, the, the vegetation would slow down the rain, and the deep roots would take the water as it percolated down. It would, it would, um, it would take some of that, but also some of the some of the water in the soil. Um, but also some of it would move away from it. But it's that whole combination of above ground biomass and the root biomass that allowed. The water to stay in place and go down the, whatever wasn't used by the plants would go down to the groundwater. And we see that very rarely these days, and that's one of the big problems we have um, in our environment. Um, we all know that we all live downstream, and um, we've pretty much ignored that, that basic tenet that we all live downstream. So.
2: Yeah, I think that. There's been some change in the field, and it's been interesting to watch the research on fungal native plant relationships. um, And it's fairly new science, but certainly something that we've been aware of the importance of fungus in our soils for since gardening, right? (laughs) Anyone with a healthy garden knows it's good to have some fungus in your, your garden, and other funguses aren't so great. Um, but the, the, the new research on prairie plants and their association with funguses and in their root systems is showing, especially things like the native legumes, which make up a, a really significant portion of the diversity in a prairie, um, may be dependent on those funguses for sort of long-term survival, which is really interesting. Um, so anything that we can do to make a planting more successful, more diverse, yeah. establish more quickly, retain water better, retain nutrients better—that's something that we're going to try to do. It's a
3: fairly affordable option and you know a lot of us um growing your front lawn like i did the soil was fairly good but not great because back when they built my house they and this was before i lived there um back in the 80s they scraped all the soil off the surface mm-hmm. and they would use that dump it around the foundation, because that would go in better than the clay. And so you basically had a soil that was devoid of any kind of life. You had the substrate, the substrate acts more like concrete, and so the water might flow off a lot quicker. So, at least we had a little bit of uh, organic material in the prairie outline, and it seemed to grow pretty well. Um, but there's other places where it just takes forever to have anything grow, any, any kind of diversity. So it's not a bad idea to, to have that added, have a hypolysis added to your seed.
2: Yeah, and I, I guess I would parallel that with I wouldn't, however, add nutrient to your soil if you're introducing native plants because generally unnecessary. You know, you should, if you have a real concern, uh, Frank's citing one condition where you might have little to no growth for a while, Um, in a space, but sometimes it's because of a pollutant that's there. Um, I've had uh, clients or folks have us over for consulting that um, they just can't get certain things to grow. So we've done soil testing, there's salt pollutants or runoff from the driveway, from a leak from the car, or some sort of strange something in your soil. So if you can't get anything to grow, dig a little deeper. But for the most part, native plants can handle the crummiest soil you can throw at them what the fungi do is help them access the nutrients and water that are there rather than feeding the plants that are there which usually just gets you in a weedy mess because the non-native plants that are present um really gobble up those nutrients so you you want to walk that fine line and walk a tough line for native plants
3: and um a colleague of ours who has done a lot of research in woodlands and prairies in Kansas and Missouri and Ohio and Indiana has looked into it and he's also studied, uh, a guy named Dave Tillman He's a, prof- a former professor at the University of Minnesota and did a lot of nutrient addition uh, studies. And basically, he believes, and I believe him, there's no reason not to, that um Really good prairies have um, a carbon to nitrogen ratio of 12 to 1 or higher. And if you get lower than that, then you're going to you have more nitrogen, um, you're going to uh, promote more weedy species, um, native or non native. Uh, if it gets really low, uh, native grasses, the seeds of native grasses, and the forbs may not germinate. So there's a lot of issues going on, so you have to be, well, it just complicates things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just some new stuff that uh, I'm using that in interpreting what I'm seeing in the prairies and, and the restorations that I'm monitoring and stuff
1: like that.
3: Yeah. What are forbes? Uh, They're wildflowers. Just another you know, term for uh, wildflowers. Uh, I don't know where that came from. Corbin seal. But what yeah. F O R B S. Um, so yeah, it's just wildflowers. Then you have the term Graminoids, which means grass-like uh, plants. Those would be like sedges and rushes. And grasses. And grasses. Because <laughs> they, may, for someone who doesn't know the plants, doesn't have a trained guy, they're just going to look like a well. That's a set of the grass, and and um, it's not. It, it, it's different.
1: All right. Well, let's let's imagine that these folks here have maybe a ten by ten area of their yard that they want to turn into, you know, take the grass. You know, right now, it's grass that they mow, and they want to turn it into native prairie. So,
3: just a small spot. What what should they do now to start that process? And you're assuming it's in, in sun, right?
2: Um, so if it's in grass, so step one is how do you get rid of your grass, and everybody's going to approach that slightly differently. In a space that small, I usually smother. Um, we smother because I'm trying not to disturb the soil structure, even if it is your lawn and it has been disturbed sometime in the last hundred years, most of our lawns have. Uh, there's still structure there, and it's important to protect as much as you can. Um, and spraying it just in a, size, a space that size isn't necessary. I mean you could, and, but if, you're, if it's July, um, you have all this amazing solar energy to use. So we, we drop a, a dark colored tarp or piece of silage plastic. We have a lot of recycled silage plastic. We live in an agricultural community. There's a lot of plastic laying around. Um, if you pin some dark plastic down now, by the time the heat breaks, you'll have a clean slate to work with. And it does it, it, helps to solarize quite a bit of
3: the weed seeds, too, which will help with the first year of payments. Frank, what would you do? Um, I could say a lot of different things. Um, I think that's a good way of doing it. Uh, it. depends on the person. depends if they are patient. If they're not and want to have something done right away, um, you could dig the 10 by 10 plot up. You could use a rototiller. Um, I'm getting away from using any kind of herbicide. Um, I've got some um, invasive species in my prairies, and I'm just mowing them, and I'm not sure what else I'm going to do, but um, I don't want to use herbicide. We use gallons, millions and millions of gallons, let's just say thousands of gallons of herbicide uh, on the land in the United States, and I think we've, that's enough. We can do any more than that. Um, so...
2: I will not jump into that subject right now. We're talking about a 10 by 10 space. You should be able to manage that by hand. You shouldn't have to get your chemicals out for a 100 square feet space. Um, but I agree that most of your weeds can be managed just by cutting kind of them low in a space that size. And if you can minimize soil disturbance, even with your annual weeds. The original question, though, about how to prepare, you can prepare any way you want to. If you're gonna till, you should till several times. is telling tends to wake up your seed, weed seedlings, unfortunately. Um, If you're going to solarize, you want to solarize long enough that when you lift that plastic, it looks brown underneath. If you're going to spray, you're usually spraying more than once. Um, I won't demonize you for spraying, I think herbicide has its place. Um, In a situation like this, it's just not necessary. There are um, a small subset of species that can handle being solarized, and they'll just pop right back up. Um, woody vines, for instance, um, like grape vines and trumpet vines and things, they tend to need in a much longer solarizing period. Some of the unintended but, reali- you know, realistic consequences of solarizing is that you are killing everything. It, with heat like this, you're killing everything in the top few inches of that soil, and that means you're killing your funguses and your beneficial insects and, and, and everything, the seeds of things you might have wanted to keep. But yeah, there will be some things that won't die from solarization, at least in a short period of time. I mean, when you're solarizing, we don't, you don't even clean up the brown stuff that's left over. You just leave it there as fertilizer for the next ground of plants. Uh, leave those dead root systems in the ground to maintain that structure until the new roots grow. There's a lot of benefit to sort of, I don't know, freezing everything in place while, while still top-telling everything.
3: Well, um, it's just a 10 by 10 plot, so... You can probably handle the weeds that come up. It just depends on how much work you want to do. Because um, mm-hmm. if you rotate till and spray, you're going to have more weeds coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just depends. Um,
2: yeah. And, you want to do. And another, I guess, another method I didn't mention, and I should have, because we do this quite often as well, is is a lot more folks now are just putting down big sheets of cardboard and cutting holes. You know, just don't, you don't even have to wait. It's sort of instant garden cardboard, cut a hole, put the plant in, mulch over the cardboard, and let the cardboard biodegrade, and it should give you a cleaner slate. Um, I think that's awesome. Cardboard is not permeable to water for quite some time. So it does make watering during the hot season a little difficult, in my opinion.
3: Well, uh, I don't think any self respecting prairie plant wants to be grown uh, with cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> just clear, clear me. Yeah, I think uh,
2: timeline and, and you know, everybody's going to experiment a little bit. Time, your timeline is going to drive your
1: methodology to a point and your capacity to a minute.
4: Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Today, we're playing a recording of a presentation given by local ecologist Courtney Masterson and Frank Norman on the topic of planting a prairie instead of a yard, hosted by Tamara Fairbanks Ishmael, one of the owners of Good Earth Gathering.
1: Did you know your business or organization could be sponsoring this episode of Eco Radio KC? Learn more at kkfi.org marketing.
0: The KKFI Crossroads Music Fest is back. Tickets are on sale right now at cmfkc.com. Presented by Community Lending of America, Crossroads Music Fest is a benefit for KKFI. 25 plus bands on six stages all in the historic West Bottoms. We're setting up a stage in the street this year and Strawberry Swing is gonna join us with some vendors. It's gonna be a lot of great fun. So please check out cmfkc.com and learn all about the festival. Get your tickets today, cmfkc.com. Thanks so much for supporting KKFI. Have you ever thought about hosting and producing your own radio show? KKFI is looking for more volunteer programmers to join our team. We offer training, experience, and a diverse community of dedicated individuals who want to keep the airwaves free. If you're interested in becoming a volunteer programmer, please contact us via email at programming@kkfi.org. kkfi.org.
4: Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Today, we're playing a recording of a presentation given by local ecologist Courtney Masterson and Frank Norman on the topic of planting a prairie instead of a yard, hosted by Tamara Fairbanks Ishmael, one of the owners of Good Earth Gathering. So what's next, then, while
1: they're waiting for the grass and, and the, yeah, whatever else they've got planted to, to die away, what should they be doing? Uh,
2: there should be a plan. Um, you should know there should be an extensive amount of research. Uh, I think most native planted spaces fail from common, common and well known mistakes. Um, plants that are too large, plants that may be too aggressive, plants that don't belong to the ecosystem <coughs> that you're planting in. Um, you know what is your ultimate long term goal for that space? Is it a space that you want to grow plants that for you to have a relationship with, or if you want a bee garden or a bird garden, um, species selection well in advance of planting is really important, and trying not to, even with native plants, (laughs) shopping native plants, uh, going to native plant nurseries, going in with a plan and not an impulse is really important.
3: (laughs) And also, it's scale, it's a 10 by 10 plot, so if you're going to be planning compass plant, which gets six, seven feet tall. and It might get even taller if that soil is really rich. I've seen plants grow much bigger. There's something called, um, what is it, phenotypic plasticity. Plants can turn on and off different genes um, to adapt to the conditions that they're in. Um, So they just may grow really, really tall and look really, really strange, And um, but those plants also, if they get really big, they're going to fall over, or they're going to shade uh, other plants. I've got a compass plant along my driveway, and uh, rosin weed and a, a, um, a few other plants, they get really, really tall, and they lean over, lean over the driveway. My wife goes crazy. She wants to cut everything down, and I want to... I sort of weave in and around the plants so I don't hurt them. Uh, that's just how I am. Um, I don't care if my car gets a little scratched. I prefer the plants to, to, to the scratches.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, species selection and knowing when you're researching native species, I always say, you know, assume you know, 30 to 50 percent taller than what that website says, because your garden, no matter what you've done, your garden's going to be richer than prairie soil, most likely. Um, and, and and so a compass plant that is four or five feet tall in the prairie will be eight feet tall and fall over in your garden, and you won't know that until three years after you planted it, because it takes that long for it to bloom sometimes. So. Knowing uh, what to expect of each of the species you've chosen and shooting for shorter than you think you want your garden to be is, is always my advice and uh, determine what your budget is. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of flexibility in, in where how you source your native plant materials. Seeds sometimes are the cheaper way to go depending on the species. Native plants are becoming easier to find all the time though and the fastest way to establish your native garden is going to be with plants. Um, we usually do a marriage of those two things, um, helping our um, projects reach maximum diversity while still in within a reasonable budget. Um, and I use uh, one plant per square foot as my starting point. Um, if you go any looser than that, they tend to fall over or they get full of weeds and you're spending a lot more time weeding. Um, you, you can go denser than that and that's fine, but um, that's really expensive, so <laughs> generally. Uh, is there a prairie seed mix that we would recommend?
3: The, the prairie seed mixes that I know that are sold commercially, uh, typically for larger tracts of land, and some of them have showy species in them that are not native to this area, or they may just be non-native, uh, I don't recommend really any of those. Um,
2: no, I do, I believe very firmly in customizing seed blends to site, um, and also intention, uh, and the seed blends that you can buy on the market tend to include rather large species, rather aggressive species, and that's important if you're trying to reclaim or re replant the native materials in a space where there may be <clears throat> difficult weeds that cause competition, or like Frank was saying, large acreages where the, the height of a plant isn't necessarily... A major concern. Um, if I was planting in my yard, I would customize something, shorter mm-hmm. species, something really, really appropriate to your soil type, your moisture, your available sunlight, and certainly the, the long-term goal for height and diversity. Um, and now, so I, I have yet to see a seed blend that's custom-made that I like, which is terrible, but...
3: Yeah, I always add um, uh, Plains coreopsis, mm-hmm. uh, Black Eyed Susan, uh, let's see Christa. Oh, uh, so those three are just remarkably beautiful. Yes, yeah. and sometimes 80%. the seeds germinate again and again and again, mm-hmm. so they'll be back again. I want to talk a little bit about. I think um, for the your best bang for your buck is putting in live putting live plugs in, plants in. I know it more but I think you can get something going right away. Yeah. A lot of times the plant won't do anything for a while. It's growing its roots to support growth above ground, so you may be disappointed the first year, and then bang, the next year is growing really well. Yeah. And I, I think one one plant per square foot, um, Well, I think the plants are gonna get a little lonely, um, you see how many, Prairie plants are growing in a remnant prairie, all close to each other. Yeah, a couple think, dozen. Else. I think a yeah. lot of yeah. a lot of plantings you see in the city and you know people's pocket prairie and, and all that. There's not enough plants. You may want to grow sedges in there. Get some mm-hmm. plugs of sedges, different sedges, because they're not. Some of them aren't going to grow as big, and you have the if you have another another layer. Of shorter plants, and then you have the taller plants, and you also probably should time look look at when the flower when the flowers are coming on, and maybe have some in the spring, some in the summer, and some in the fall, uh, just to make it a real diverse thing. Of course, that gets that gets real complicated, and um, you may want to hire an expert to help you.
2: There's some really amazing free resources online now, but 10 years ago this conversation was much more difficult. Now you can get online and get on, you know, Grow Native, Missouri Missouri, uh, Prairie Foundation's Grow Native program. They have just dozens of free native planting guides and they think through all those things like something always blooming and what's the ecosystem and how tall is it is appropriate to a yard. and there's so there's several resources like that. Okay.
3: And also, you know, I was just joking about the expert. Um, I don't work on anything smaller than an acre. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can't. I can't work on ten by tens. Um,
2: we yes. I'm,
3: I'm being facetious here. I, I think a lot of it is just educating yourself. Just doing it, you learn a lot. You learn what works, what doesn't work. Some things will work nine times out of ten, but this year it's the plant didn't grow, the plants didn't grow very well, and, uh, or you watered it too much, or um, bugs hit
2: it. So that's that's what's so magical about a, a remnant landscape that encompasses all of that diversity is that, as Frank was alluding to, uh, every year some plants are successful and some aren't, but those tools are still in the toolbox. Uh, they're still there waiting for the next year when the weather's different. and. You live in Kansas, so it's different every year. And it's so great that the prairie and the woodland and the wetlands here have the capacity to adjust to strange weather patterns like what we get here in the Midwest. Like
3: well, what we're getting next week. Oh I would my be playing the a um, uh, little 10 by 10 prairie next
2: Don't plant next week. 100
3: degree
2: weather we'll all That's right. It's a good time to, yeah. And I mean, uh, we t- I mean, you can certainly, while I use sort of one plant per square foot as a starting point, there's some plants like wild blue indigo that need three or four square feet, and you're going to have to weed around that plant and put little sedges up around it to so hold it up. Um, there's, that's just a starting point. But even if you were using that and you're talking about 100 square feet, that's $400. It's re- I know that that's a lot for some folks, it's a lot of money for me, but $400. And if you do it well and you plan well and it's the appropriate species for, the, for your place, that's the last time you're spending money on plants. I mean, that's pretty darn cool for that space. They live a very long time, they drop a lot of seeds, they feed the wildlife, they spread. $400 isn't a lot to ask for a high square feet to be done,
4: you know, that's pretty cool. Uh, we went to the state to help us come up with a mixture for our 10-acre prairie, and um, in it they included Maximilian sunflowers. They have completely overtaken our prairie and crowded a lot of other things out, and I just wonder, are we stuck with that? Is there any remedy to that? That's a really good question.
3: Um, well, I had a lot of that in my prairie that I put in around 20 years ago, and now there's hardly any Maximilian so far, So um, I just I don't know what happened. It's just there's less of it, and I burn you know nearly every year because I like a showy fire and, and invite people out, and <laughs> people from other states come out, and they people from other countries come out and um they could they
2: can't
3: it's an acre purring it's, it's, it's big it's a lot bigger than 10 by 10. And it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> come on don't be picking on my purring
1: no i love
2: it we, we both like to make an occasion out of burning i think it's such an important practice for native spaces um and it's
3: it's just primal. It's deep in your soul. If it's something that you've started to do, it means a lot to you. I
2: feel
0: like a Neanderthal when I'm out
3: there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Looks like a Neanderthal. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that, yes, by the right. way. Okay, hard. back to Maximilian Sunflower. We digress,
0: <laughs> especially
3: when we banter back and forth. Um, uh, it just depends. Um, just see what happens in the next couple of years. You can you can cut it down in, in spots, like the edges of it. Cut it down. Manage and, the seed. Uh, manage the seeds, yeah.
2: It may be that, as Frank is saying, that it may just need some time. But seed management is one way to deal with it, but it's a perennial species. So I, my experience with Helianthus perennial sunflowers is the more you cut them, the more it seems to make them mad <laughs> and they just spread more. Um, and that's true of a lot of rhizomatous species like Hel- like the Maximilian sunflower, if you cut it, it's just the goldenrods. And um, if you cut them, it tells the plant, um, why don't I try over here instead then? And it just makes a bunch of more stems. Uh, so it may or may not work to cut them, but seed management it just look like cutting the heads off before they set seeds. Um, it might be worth I don't know how large of a patch you're talking about, though. That may not
3: be worth your it's effort. 10 acres. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all, max, all Maximilian
2: <laughs> sunflower? Well, it didn't start out that way. We had all sorts of um, orbs out there. The, the wildfires, the butterflies were amazing the first year or two. But now, that's mostly gone The grasses. I'm not saying they're totally gone, but all I see are the sun, Maximilian sunflowers. And I don't put Maximilian sunflower on my seedlings, but I understand why they do. It's an affordable seed, and it's showy, <coughs> and it's nutritionally valuable to wildlife. And
3: what would um, be the best time to burn? Dormant season
2: burn? Yeah. Uh, so uh, when everything's sleeping. So I usually, sometimes Thanksgiving-ish, um, until I usually stop the first week of March. But let nature tell you. You know, when the animals are moving, you're done. Um,
3: right
1: here. Yeah, go ahead. I'm glad that Frank mentioned sedges. Yes, as a, as a way to space things out. I hadn't thought about that. Um, but I wanted to mention a
2: plant that I love, but I recommend not planting because um, it took over and I lost a lot of
1: really good plants. Um,
2: Canada anemone.
1: Yes, which yes. is rhizomatous, and yeah, it seemed to say. Oh, if your spouse is going to cut it, I'm going to find more um,
2: places and ways to adapt. And yeah, a great that's all I sure have it. in that yard anymore. I yeah, I love that plant. I, yeah. I harvest
3: some from the floodplain of the Missouri River on some disturbed areas, and I look at the edge of my lawn, and it was OK where it was, and it's moved out into the lawn and moved north of the lawn. And, um, it's okay where I put it, but I don't. I wouldn't put it in a ten by ten plot for sure.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean. and it's funny if you talk to uh, Prairie folks just a state or two north of us. It's much better behaved up there. It's something about Kansas um, that makes it really, really happy and bushy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think Shirley makes a good point though. Knowing the growing characteristics of the species you're adding is really important. Uh, there may be spaces you want just chock full of anemone. But just know what their limits are and and hold them to those spaces.
1: So, for us, speaking of plant species, for like a suburban lawn, you know, tra- you know transferring as much as you can over to uh, native prairie, let's have each of you pick five species mm-hmm. that you would not be without in a space like that. So, I think we're talking
2: lawn height, um,
1: small space,
3: small,
2: small spaces, fairly short statured species
3: we
2: oh, <laughs> um, We've done some.
3: For, of these for
2: cool. lower down Lower, down. Down. lower down, <laughs> <Yeah>. down. Well, <laughs> we've done some of these lawn replacements now. I hope the native lands will be able to do a native spaces tour soon, and we'd invite everybody out. Um, so we tend to start our lawn replacements, even though that's not exactly what we're talking about, uh, with really short statured stuff, so glade species or prairie understory species, things like. Um, pussy toes and rose verbena, Missouri evening primrose. Um, pussy toes, there's several species of pussy toes the Antenaria species, uh, rose verbena, and then uh, Missouri evening primrose is the other one I said. But it's the, it's a short statured primrose, which is really nice. And, and of, of, of those three, you've already checked the box for if you just planted those three things, something's blooming all year. You have host plants in all three of those. Um, You have medicinal plants in those species, um, and you're providing seeds for wildlife. Just with those three, if you change your whole yard to those three things, you're already providing gobs of resources for wildlife and for yourself. Um, If I was going to add two more, definitely, as Frank already said, and I, I regret not already saying, you cannot exclude the native grasses sedges. They're incredibly important. Um, and so I would say make sure you have a native short grass. I really like blue grama and side oats um, for lawns.
0: Um, and then a native
2: sedge. I love all the native sedges. Um, for a sunny space. Don't you
3: love frank sedge the most? Frank
2: sedge is actually <laughs> one of my favorite sedges. But it's, I wouldn't, that's, to, you gotta have the proper moisture for so frank sedge. Plants, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I really like, Need sedge and bushes sedge for prairie spaces, um, but there's a lot of great prairie sedges.
3: I don't know where you get those. Kinds.
2: You can, okay. Okay. but you're right; they're tougher. Sedges are a little harder to get your hands on. What would you say, Craig?
3: Well, most of the plants I like probably not do well in ten by ten. Ebom is one of my favorite plants. Yeah. and It can be very—it's a mint, very aggressive. Um,
2: but there are choices within the bee bombs that are a little better behaved, like um, maybe Menarda punctata is a shorter lived one and shorter. We
3: could put a collar on it and try to hold
2: it down. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, and Frank, Frank is going to—I bet—mention several species that have really deep human relationships. And when you're putting in a plant that's medicinal, edible, and great for wildlife, like bee don't be afraid to harvest from that plant sustainably and respectfully, but do not let the people run over everybody else.
3: <laughs> um Psydux so Gramma is a really good good grass. It's shorts. I'm just trying to imagine my look at my prairies and see I know, know penston How do you feel about penston Ah oh,
2: man
3: I got penston in my in my back prairie and when they seeded it the grasses didn't take, but boy, penston took over and so did uh, what's your narrow leaf? Um, Slender Mountain Men. Slender Mountain Men did. Origin um, mm-hmm. wouldn't
2: be a bad one. Yeah, Rattlesnake Mouse. Rattlesnake master is a
3: good And that won't take over. It's, it can self seed, but it, it's fairly tall and it's a beautiful plant. It's uh, worth having. Mm-hmm.
1: So, do those need to be seeded now if they kill the grass off this? you know, late summer, do they seed in the fall then? Almost
2: all of those species we listed outside of the native grasses need cold, moist stratification to germinate. And that means that you're either seeding them at the beginning of winter and letting them germinate on their own on site, um, or you're doing that artificially in a refrigerator or in a covered container outside. Um, We practice all of those different methods. Um, If I'm seeding something, If I'm interested in growing something that's an attractive seed for wildlife, like echinacea, sunflowers, things, large, nutritious seeds, legumes. Uh, That's not something I tend to disperse on-site early, because you lose a lot of it to wildlife. Because you're basically throwing bird seed on the ground and asking for someone to eat
4: it. You're listening to Eco Radio KC. We're listening to Courtney Masterson and Frank Norman, both local ecologists speaking at an event hosted by Good Earth Gathering. And the moderator is Tamara Fairbanks-Ishmael. We'll be right back.
1: Did you know that your smart speaker can play your favorite community radio station too? Just say, play KKFI to your smart speaker and stay tuned in to your favorite shows. The future is truly here.
0: We don't have time for our Calendar this week, but you can find it on our Eco Radio Facebook page.
4: Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Today, we're playing a recording of a presentation given by local ecologists Courtney Masterson and Frank Norman on the topic of planting a prairie instead of a yard, hosted by Tamara Fairbanks Ishmael, one of the owners of Good Earth Gathering.
3: We're going to move to I guess another plant, although it's not a prairie plant, per se, although you see it in prairies, you see it in woodlands, you see it on the edge of woods, and that would be elderberry. Oh, yeah. Um, It gets a little tall, but uh, um, I think everybody should have that on their land. Plantain is another one. There's just so many, yeah. They're
2: all great. Plant them all. Well, plantain
3: just comes up on its own, so.
2: Yeah, that's it. And we have some friends here who are really great at accessing uh, the the beautiful medicinal properties of plantain, and we no. use it as medicine in our house every day. Of course.
1: Yeah. What do you think of purple mallow poppy, or is it purple, purple poppy mallow? mallow? The yeah. question
2: is, what do we think about purple poppy mallow? <laughs> yeah, but that's not the key medicinal garden. That's what i just Yeah. Trying.
0: It's a butte. It's a butte. I really like it. It's a
2: short ground crawler. The only potential problem with poppy mallow is that if you put it near walkways and you don't tend it, it can be a tripping hazard. It does have pretty tough, yeah. you know, fibrous vines, yeah. uh, but it's really, it, it takes to being cut back very well. It does not mind, and you can even mow it and it still blooms at lawn height. You can mow right over it and it'll still bloom. It's beautiful. You know, tiny seeds don't want to be deep in the soil. Bigger seeds want to be deeper in the soil. Um, you, you can sort of follow that trend for native species, but if you're putting in a 100 species blend, good luck making every seed perfectly happy. What we do is seed in the winter, and the freeze-thaw cycle of our soil tends to pull the seeds down the level that they need to be to germinate well. Um, you can mechanically work them in. in a site that, that size, just the back of a rake, um, or you can even stuff them in with your fingers. You can talk about 10 foot by 10 foot on a big prairie you're either drilling seeds or raking seeds in or mm-hmm.
3: or otherwise and when they're drilling they're not putting them in any it's less than a quarter of an inch deep the seeds just need to be barely, barely covered mm-hmm. um,
2: so just think about what nature does that's what we do and i tend to do our seeding before snowfall or rainfall if at all possible it helps with your seed to soil contact and then again that freezing and thawing opens
1: the soil up and pulls your seeds down into the soil, it's a lot less work for you. So any other any considerations that you would add um, for doing this in a, a suburban or in-town
3: setting? Well, yeah, I, there's a few things. Um, um, well, neighbors that might get irate and complain to whomever of, of people of power, then you have to address that a little bit. You may want to cut some of your plants down a little bit lower. Um, you know, if you've got an its three-foot, six-foot tall, you may want to manicure them a little bit. Yeah, um,
2: I think intentional, making your space look managed is really important if you live in town, um, or if you happen to have a neighbor um, who you think might be triggered by this situation. You also can't do too much community Outreach about what you're doing. I think letting the neighbors know before you even start is really important. Having educational signage, having um, having someone who can help you with education if you're struggling isn't a bad thing either. Some of our clients that have um, done lawn replacement in City of Lawrence, these are in town houses with prairie lawns. Now um, it goes very well if everybody knows what you're doing. The City of Lawrence knows. The neighbors know. Their signs were out there pending making it look intentional. If it's just a, if it's a, a garden floating in your lawn, having a, an edging edging or a border on it so it looks like a, lawn, a garden space and not just a spot you forgot to know, mm-hmm. is really important. And maybe avoiding the eight-foot-tall plants and waiting a little while. Maybe forego those for the first couple of years and then add them later, um, once the space has been embraced by your community already. Mm-hmm. You know, be kind to them. And as they learn, they'll be more accepting
3: what is the awareness of the impact of the beautiful mowed lawn as compared to soil herbicide runoff, soil compaction etc 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 how is and i don't mean to digress on your program here pollinators. but is there an awareness that can be supported with with that because it, it's incredibly damaging i, I always feel like criticizing agriculture mm-hmm. for herbicides and all this you know i i have i'm in conventional agriculture in some respects and i have not built for 40 years you yeah. know my degrees in soil science and i understand soil structure mm-hmm. and mowing these lawns is is not the situation. you're right
2: absolutely um uh, sorry no, you're not bothering me. Thank you for bringing it up. And that is, I mean, the, the damage of these monoculture lawn spaces is exactly why we we, we come out in the community to give these talks. Um, um, the input, the water, the chemical input. If you one step further out, the the resources needed for mowing and and leaf blowing and management of a lawn space. I mean, it just it, it just compounds. It just gets worse and worse. And of course when look at water quality and um, even heat that, you know, coming up off of the plants. Uh, there's been some really cool posts that are spreading rapidly on social media lately on uh, soil temperatures, uh, looking at lawn spaces versus uh, row crop spaces versus prairie. Prairie being the coolest soil, even on 100-degree days. Um, um, there is a lot of push now.
3: What is the department
2: to contact information? The, the question being, who do we get a hold of to say, hey, we, this is a well known fact now. This is bad practice. What are we going to do about it? Um, there's there's several places to go. Certainly, contacting your county weed management offices um, and your conservation districts. Health, you know, it's a broader swath. Um, contacting the city you live in and telling them that you like to see native planting that you prefer to see. The community encouraged to, to install native plantings. And then your parks departments, think about who are the largest landowners and managers in your community. Also, in, um, as you're looking at new developments. Mm-hmm. As you're there, K Dot. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're going to county and city commission meetings and you're learning about new developments that are being discussed, are they incorporating native plantings or certainly at least not monocultures? How much lawn um, is, is in this plan? What about the areas what's uh, that lawn replacement? Okay. Everybody's talking about uh, different ground covers. Yes. Lawn, lawn replacement, ground covers? That's what your question is. Like, what kind of ground covers? In the place where you actually want to be able to use, use it like a lawn? Right. Yeah, there's honestly a mixture of native short grasses and native sedges is a fantastic lawn replacement. Just remember your... Not, you're trying to move from a monoculture, whether it's native monoculture or not, you're moving from a monoculture to a not monoculture so that your lawn is able to respond to whatever, uh, weather patterns it's gonna get that year. So if you want, this isn't gonna work for you, I'll tell you as a cheat. (laughs) Buffalo grass lawns don't work here. Um, (laughs) it's too wet here. But even if you were successful and got a buffalo grass lawn to work one year, the next year it wouldn't because it would be too wet. And because it's a monoculture, it's going to fail the same way any other monoculture would. So
0: combining
2: several short, fine, grass-like species is the way
3: to go. And, and the buffalo grass cannot tolerate shade. I want to mention lawns. We have, we have a little bit of a lawn, and I would not mow it every week. I try not to mow it every week, and I try to, if there's red clover and white clover blooming, I try to avoid mowing that. Uh I go out in the county um driving around and people have I have maybe an acre, less than an acre of lawn. Um, Some people have one, two, three, four, five acres of lawn and they mow it every week religiously, um and they cut it really short. Uh, I think people could just mow maybe around the house where they could walk and then mow everything else maybe once or twice a month. Um, it's not some kind of fanatical thing that you have to do. I know you, they feel more like a man than a woman when they get on their mowing. <laughs> <laughs> I do too sometimes, but it wipes me out more anymore. So um, I think there's, if they're not going to put prairie in, maybe they let the lawn grow a little bit longer and not irrigate it so much and, uh, herb, and and leave the dandelions in the weeds in the, in the lawn and the plantain in the lawn and, uh, and the chickweed, chickweed in the lawn and the medicinal plants in the lawn. Those are three medicinal plants that are primo and they're from Europe. They were brought over here by settlers who love those plants and they're still here now. And so, okay. so Mo, if you're going to... I have keep a lawn more or
1: less. That's all. That's uh, all. Cool. We were talking about shade. I've got a lot of shade in my front yard. So mm. what
2: can I plant that's natural and sort? Sedges. And also wild strawberry. <gasps> my favorite one oh. for shade is a combination of... Uh, depending on how much moisture you have, dry shade is a different swath of species than what the shade is. Um, I hope you don't have a swath front yard. <laughs> um, a sloppy front yard does no. right. Um But dry shade, um, we really like uh, Pennsylvania Sedge or Oak Sedge, uh, Star Sedge. Those are available commercially. And I, uh, Ryan and I plant wild strawberry in full sun and full shade. And you can't beat a snack in the front yard and it runs around and fills everything in really densely. So once you get a nice strawberry patch, these are perennial and they back every year. Once you have a nice native strawberry patch going, um, it gets pretty dense and most grass doesn't. Weedy grass. Uh, Virginia waterleaf is it, so the, the first shade, dry shade, some of the uh, spring ephemerals are amazing. Uh, wild ginger, Virginia waterleaf, uh, um, Virginia bluebells, uh, wild flocks, willow flocks, uh, there's and, uh, golden ground soles, all the ground soles, I love dry shade, it's fantastic what you can do there and the weeds tend to be such a, uh, a reduced pressure than they are in full sun.
1: More questions, okay, we'll take a few more questions. I was just wondering if you recommend anything like I mean mulch. Obviously, you don't want to cover up the um, area where the plants be receding, but to keep weeds from going many, times and many times.
2: So in garden spaces with native stuff, we we do tend, depending on the time of year we're planting, we do tend to mulch very lightly with natural mulches that'll break down fairly quickly. Um, and then the goal is for it to be filling in, so you never mulch again. So you're just mulching year one for weed management. We use Cedar, pine bark mulch. Um, I have colleagues that use pine needles. I don't know anywhere to get a bulk amount of pine needles unless you have a pine tree. Uh, but you can get uh, local cedar and, and pine bark locally really
3: affordably, and they work really well. You can, you can also just leave. A, um, use your leaves. Yeah. yeah. So we we I rake and I mow right. the leaves. Break them up. and oh sorry i, I just break up my leaves and we pile them up and use them in the garden sometimes and use them in i'm growing some medicinal plants and i've just got a layer about this thick and uh, it's easy it's easy to throw them out uh easy to distribute them around plants it's better if you just got a lot you know say you put 10 or 20 plants in your 10 by 10 you can mulch every one of those and you can mulch thicker if you want um, we're only talking about 10 by 10 so it's it's not as labor intensive as larger areas, so you might be able to manage that better now if you throw seed out then you want to have just a
2: so just don't go deep with your mulch and, and don't use it if you don't need to It's that's something that's that's, a, that's an aesthetic that came with us um, from somewhere else English gardening, French gardening, you do not need to add mulch to native gardens to manage them unless you're worried about weed management that first year.
3: And and also the first year that you're doing your prairie, it's okay to water the plants? Yes. They're they're not established, they're still finding their way, um, developing roots and like, let's say you just put your prairie in April uh, or March, and uh, we're going to get eight days, at least eight days, 100-degree weather, um, and you may want to water the plants. It's okay. It's a, it's a prairie, but uh, prairie plants, and, but they're not really well established. Maybe in a few more years, you won't have to do that, or... If you feel sorry for them because they look a little haggard, you can water them. You know, we'll be able to use water for the next few more years probably, right? <laughs> so we won't be restricted to our water use. Now we don't live in Arizona, like thank God. So,
2: uh, okay. Be involved in local governance. Whatever you care about, you need to let them know. Don't assume that they know how important prairies and woodlands and wetlands and streams are. Uh, let them know that you care. It helps us do our job. If you can, if we can say, well, the community is saying this, then it's a lot harder for them to take steps that would harm our community if we're being hopeful about it.
1: And I think I'm along the same vein. Jamie and I've talked about this as well. Too, you know, independent journalism is super important because we don't know what's going on inside those meetings if we're not physically present. Unless we have independent journalism there, and so support independent journalism. You know, I just subscribed to the Lawrence Times. They've been great about the coverage um, on uh, about the Prairie Park Nature Center. They did a story about this event. Um, they're doing a, a really good job, and we we need independent journalism in these meetings if we can't physically be there. That's the only way we know what's going on. And we do need to follow the money. And when we have, as Jamie mentioned, we have elections coming up for city council and those types of things, we need to be able to say, you know, who is supporting these people? Where is the money coming from? Where is their support coming from? And we need to vote accordingly. And we need to spread the word. Um, That's super important. We need to educate ourselves. We need to educate those around us. And we need to advocate for change whenever possible. Thank
4: you so much, uh, Frank and Courtney, for being here today. KKFI is listening, and your feedback helps to inform our decisions on current and future programming. It's important for your voice to be heard, so let us know what you think about our programming by going online and filling out the KKFI Listener Survey at kkfi.org survey.
3: This is Professor Howard Zinn. The independent, non-commercial radio station you're listening to is really important in the maintenance of democracy. Thomas Jefferson once said, an informed democracy will behave in a reasonable manner. So if you care about being informed, if you care about democracy, if you're a reasonable person... You are, of course. Please support your source for uncensored news and views and the voice of your community. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Thank you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI. 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators,
4: including me, Craig Lugo, Terry Wilking, Brent Risdale, Bob Grove, and Dave Mitchell. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Mid-Coast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org. This is Richard Magian, and you can send
3: inquiries and comments to our email at kkfi.org forward slash contact or message us on our Facebook page.
4: Up next is Fiesta Musical, followed by Noche Magica.
0: Our outro music is Big Yellow Taxi by Jody Mitchell.
4: Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what
3: you've got till it's gone? Ooh.